Today we are coming back to the Gospel of Matthew. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at chapters 21 to 25. We started looking at the message um, of Matthew at Christmas and jumped these few chapters as we approached Easter. Matthew, uh, as with the rest of the Gospels, is unique in how he presents Jesus. He records the accounts of Jesus in a way that gives us context to the salvation plan of God. Fulfilled is one of Matthew's characteristic verbs, that it may be or might be fulfilled. Eugene Peterson describes it as Jesus is the coming together in final form of themes and energies and movements that had been set in motion before the foundation of the world. Matthew comes to that from a very Jewish cultural background. And in our passage today, we see this as Jesus responds to a question from the leaders of Israel, both the spiritual leaders and um, the social leaders of the people of Israel. And he teaches them through his response and answer God's plan of salvation. It is God's plan and not one that is crafted by men. So as we come and as we will start thinking about these things, let's come and let's offer ourselves to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we have come. We have prepared our hearts. We have offered you our praise. We have listened to your voice through your word. So we now come to understand it as you will speak to us. We desire to be holy, set apart for you. So we pray that you will do your work in us today. Make us, compel us to listen to your voice so that we will leave here not influenced by men, but changed by you to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. It was all about power. That's what they were concerned about. The chief priests and the elders of the people were the holders of this power. They were the ones who dictated what was taught, how people should live, and it all centered around their world. It was about power. And they didn't like that power being challenged, much like ourselves. If we are put in authority, if we have leadership, we don't like it when we feel that little pillar starting to shake, to be knocked ever so slightly. It takes us to be humble, to recognize that we aren't the true leaders, but it is only God working through us that we can lead. These guys didn't like their power being challenged, and they were in the presence of Jesus. And once again, as they were in the presence of Jesus, they had one motive in mind. That was to trick, to trap, and try to arrest Jesus and get him out of the way. This annoyance from the backwater of Galilee needed to be put down so that the status quo wouldn't be upset. 
Mark and Luke, incidentally, add a third group of people in this meeting. It wasn't um, just the elders, uh, but the teachers of the law were there as well as the religious leaders. And they're all gathered in the temple courts. It's celebration time. Jesus has come. He has made his way, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to celebrate the festival and feast of Passover. In verse 10 of chapter 21, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. And these are the final days of his earthly ministry. Our New Testament eyes just don't see this as the festival. We don't just see it as the Passover and Jesus undertaking what he had to traditionally do. With our New Testament eyes, we see this as the completion of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and God's salvation plan, the final piece being put into place. Jesus had entered Jerusalem with crowds of people waving those palm branches and crying Hosanna to the son of David. He's been honored as a great king, a king not on a horse but on a donkey, coming in but yet still worshipped and entitled to be that king. And as he got into Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple. And why wouldn't he? For that was the place where God was. It's where people centrally came to worship Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And when he got there, Jesus sees what is going on, and he isn't best pleased by it. He sees traitors and stalls, and he goes in, and we have that great picture of him turning over the tables with whatever birds are being sold, crashing out of their cages and flying off, and the money chinkling onto the floor as it bounces away from the sellers and the traders. Jesus is purifying the temple. He's trying to say to those who are there for self-gain, this is not what this place of worship is about. This is a place where we offer sacrifices to the Most High God. So after this incident, this moment in the temple where Jesus is making his point, he clears out of Jerusalem. Night falls. He goes to Bethany, two miles or so out of the city. He rests. And in this whole week of festivities, the very next day, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, back into the temple. And this is where we pick up our story today. The religious leaders have been watching. They've been watching Jesus and listening to his teachings. At a break in the teaching that Jesus is giving, they approach him and they ask him one question. They want to know by what authority Jesus is doing this. Who does he think he is being here and saying these things? And this isn't just about the physical place where he's standing. It's not permission to be in the temple. It is permission about his teaching. What authority does he have to say these things that is challenging the teaching, the traditional teaching of these leaders? This is what they want to know. They want to know, Jesus, who do you think you are teaching these things? Because we're uneasy with it. We're getting upset about it. People don't know what to believe anymore. And Jesus is ready once again, as he always is, to give an answer. But his answer comes in the form of a deal. It's not the typical answer we would expect. If they can answer his question, 
he will answer theirs. It's a simple little deal. Jesus asked them, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Jesus is referring here to his cousin, John the Baptist. The leaders had little regard for John. John was one of those weird guys out in the wilderness, teaching and preaching, and really wasn't off the establishment. In fact, when the establishment came near at one point, John very graciously called them a brood of vipers. So the regard that these two people, John the Baptist and this group of leaders, had for each other wasn't the smoothest of relationships. John had been causing problems, not only for the religious leaders, but also for the king. And so he had been brought before Herod. He was imprisoned and eventually executed and done away with. And while Jesus was teaching a crowd of people in Galilee one day, he teaches that John was a prophet and more. So Jesus had said to these people, this is who he really is. He's not just some guy out there eating locusts and honey. He's not dressed strangely and probably smells different from the rest of us. He is the guy who is a prophet and much more than that. He is the prophet who is ushering the way for the salvation plan of God in Jesus Christ. And in verse 26 of our passage this morning, we get this glimpse that the religious leaders knew this as well. Even the leaders in this verse note the special place that John had in the hearts of the people because the people saw him as a prophet. So what are they going to do? These guys are put in a quandary. They take time to think about their answer. If they recognize John's baptism as coming from heaven, then they have to accept him as a prophet. There's no other way about it. If John has been baptized from heaven, he is someone special set aside for God's work. And in accepting him as a prophet, they must accept his teaching And part of his teaching was to accept that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who would come, the Messiah, to bring the true kingdom of God. So that's one side of the agreement or or one side of the answer that they have to give. The other side is, well, if they say that it's from men, well, then they're in a wee bit of a personal security issue because they would be afraid that the people would rise up against them because the people held John in such high regard and saw him as a prophet They couldn't risk any form of revolt or any form of challenge against their authority from the local populace. So they come back to Jesus in verse 27 with the only answer that they can to get them out of this sticky situation. They say, we don't know. Even though Matthew records they knew fine rightly, it was their choice to come with this answer and say, we don't know don't know. And as they couldn't answer Jesus's question, so Jesus isn't going to answer theirs. Or so we think. Because instead of giving a straight answer by which authority or by what authority Jesus has to teach these things, Jesus goes into a series of three parables, all with a similar theme, teaching these Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers, and elders about what it truly means to be a follower of God. The question comes, and it is all about the authority of Jesus Christ. They don't accept Jesus and the authority he has. 
In John 12, verses 49 to 50, Jesus tells us that his authority comes from God. And he says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus acknowledges that he has no authority in himself, but it comes straight from God, that every word, every miracle, everything that comes from Jesus is from the authority of God, his Father. The original hearers of this knew that there was something different about Jesus. They knew that he wasn't your normal rabbi. His teaching was radical. It was different from the traditional teaching. What about us today? Is the teaching of Jesus radical to us? Do we understand the authority the words of Jesus should have on our lives, the lives of his followers? Or are we still living in that wonderful little world of Sunday school? where we hear these stories of the Bible and we think that's what it is, just these nice little stories. But in fact, behind each story, Old and New Testament reveals God, who he is in this great picture of his awesomeness. And of course, in the Gospels, that image of Jesus Christ, the God-man coming to this earth as part of God's plan. Jesus has dealt with an authority issue before. Earlier in his ministry in Luke chapter 6, he asked the people, why do they call him Lord, Lord, and don't do what he says? They are following him. They're chasing him everywhere he goes. They want to see these miracles. They want to hear these stories. They realize there's something different about this teacher, but they're still not doing what he says. They're paying lip service to him. They are not willing to completely submit to Jesus Christ. Whenever Woolworths closed in at the start of 2009, there was a newspaper article appeared, and it was suggesting what we would miss most about Woolies. And it wasn't going to be their street value uh, items, those knockdown prices that we were all rushing to get, nor was it going to be their wide selection and variety of goods. We were going to miss most the pick and mix. You know what it's like. You get your wee shovel, you stick it in, you select which sweets you like, you put them into that bag, and you leave behind the ones you don't like. Normally the licorice, from what I can remember. And you take it up to the counter and you put it on the scales, and as the years got on, you got more and more shocked at the price a quarter of sweets would cost you. But you knew in your bag you had the sweets that you wanted And there wasn't going to be any that you were going to have to give to anybody else. And there certainly wasn't going to be any that you were going to throw out and waste your money on. It actually turns out we all love pick and mix. And not just the variety that we get in Woolworths or now Tesco's as they seem to have taken over that market. All too often we pick and mix the teachings and lessons of Jesus. We do what we want to do because we are comfortable with it, because we like it. And we decide to leave those things that we find difficult or hard or things that will, in our minds, make us stand out as different 
or face any form of flack from people around us. We just leave those to one side. They don't matter, but I've got my bag and I've got what I want and I'm comfortable with that and I'm happy to go with my pick and mix bag. Jesus has told us that we are to love God with all our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as the God-man, this applies to Jesus also. We must follow him with all of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus offers us a life of discipleship, following his ways, learning from him. He is the teacher. It is not up to us which parts of his message we want to opt in for and those we want to opt out of. It's the full package. It has to be, and it cannot be any other way. We must follow him completely. I'm guessing that we will all agree on the authority that Jesus has to teach these things. We recognize him as the Son of God who came to this earth, but for a very short time. He was God among us. Everything of Jesus comes from God. So let's start living it. Let's take on board the teachings of Jesus and let's follow his life as he wants us to live. It's a life that has different priorities from that of the world around us. The priorities are those of the kingdom of God. They're not priorities shaped by man and those who who think we should be doing things this way or that way. Not only is it the priorities of the kingdom of God, but we have the promises of God that he will equip us and strengthen us to make his priorities our priorities. This is the life that we're called to. We don't get a shovel and a little bag. We don't get to pick and choose what we want. It is all, or do I say, it is all or nothing. Jesus wants us completely committed to him, not in a way that we think is right and in a way we think will be his way. It must be completely his way. To help the leaders out a little bit, Jesus tries to explain it further in a way that they would understand. And as normal, Jesus embraces the oral culture of the ancient Near East tradition and tells three stories of what we know as parables. We will look at two of them this morning and leave one for next week. And the first of these parables is verses 28 to 32. It's about a father and his two sons. He goes to both of the sons individually and asks them to go and do the same job. It's simple. Go today and work in the vineyard. The first son, almost in that stroppy teenager fashion, says no. He won't do it. But later, he changes his mind, reconsiders and does what his father asks him to do and goes and works in that vineyard. The second son says that he will go and work But on a second consideration of that task, he doesn't go and do what he said he would. Jesus asks the leaders, which of the two sons did what he was asked? And as the answer comes, 
The leaders are sure of their answer, and they say, the first son, the one who said no, but eventually went and did what his father wanted. In response to this, Jesus shocks the leaders. And please understand the shock element in this by saying that prostitutes and tax collectors, the despised of society, were entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of them, the spiritual leaders of Israel. Jesus is showing how the message of salvation was accepted by those who the religious classes thought shouldn't be part of it and shouldn't be entitled to it. They who know themselves to be desperately needy of grace were the ones open to it and thus the ones who received it. This is the shock and the radicalness of Jesus' message. Those who were standing in front of him, who felt they had earned every right as the the spiritual authority of Israel to go into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are now told that the lowest of the low, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, will be ahead of them entering that kingdom. And Jesus moves into the second parable. And the parable again focuses on a vineyard. And this continual theme of vineyard is significant. The original hearers would have recognized the prophetic tradition in what was being meant by vineyard. They saw Israel being described as the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, it's a passage that is known as the Song of the Vineyard, and it talks about how God plants a vineyard, how he puts a people in it. And much like this parable, um, the, the song accounts how a wall was built, a watchtower was put in, and a wine press put there. Tenants are put in, but the tenants in Isaiah don't do what they're supposed to do, and they are punished for that. In verse 7 of Isaiah 5, it says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And this is what these people would understand. This is a culture that made these connections. They were in their tradition. They were in their history. And words conjured up in their minds, uh, elements of the past, promises, that prophetic message that was coming through the whole of the Old Testament. And this is where we need to be clear that Jesus wasn't just teaching some normal, little, simple story, a nice way to pass the time. This is where there's great significance in the message that Jesus has, fully understood by the religious leaders and by the people around them. The parable tells the story of a man who built and planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants. He goes off the scene for a while, and at harvest time, he sends his servants to go and get the harvest, what would be entitled to him. He sends three of his servants. They go to try and collect this harvest rent. The tenants aren't so keen on this, and they beat one, kill another, and stone the third servant. At this point, the owner of the vineyard had every legal right to go to the authorities and get these tenants kicked out and punished for what they had done. But he doesn't. He sends more servants, servants who went on a task on behalf of their master, were his representatives, his envoys. They were to be treated as the master himself. But again, the tenants treated this new batch of envoys in the same way as the first. Again, knowing his legal right, the owner doesn't go after them as he should, but sends his own son 
He thinks that they'll recognize him, they'll respect him, they'll respond to him. But the tenants decide among themselves to kill him also and claim that inheritance as theirs. And Jesus ends the story here. And to those listening uh, to this, the story is unthinkable. Why would this be allowed to happen? Why should it have continued? The master should have acted in a way that was appropriate. Jesus allows the leaders to conclude the story by asking them what they think will happen when the owner of the kingdom comes himself. And the answer is what we would expect. They will be punished. uh, They will be taken away and new tenants will be put in to harvest for him. And Jesus continues with his message from the parable, and he quotes part of Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is teaching the leaders that the kingdom of God has been taken away from them and has been opened up to those who will produce fruit. Jesus finishes this section of teaching by developing the message of Psalm 118. He says he is the capstone. Or as a few weeks ago, we thought he is the cornerstone. He is the one that has been rejected by the builders. He is the one who has been rejected by those who should have received him. And those who fall on him will be broken as a symbol of their old life being broken and a new life started in Christ. But those on whom are crushed by this stone receive their judgment of Christ, or their judgment from Christ for not following the way of salvation. So what are these two parables saying to us? There's one theme that is running through them. They both teach that there's going to be an upset to the status quo. Those who thought they were going to be in the kingdom may be surprised by what actually happens. There was an assumption that the religious leaders would be the one who would fully inherit everything of the kingdom of God because of their position in society and what was outwardly seen as a life dedicated to the service of God. In reality, they had become so wrapped up in what they did and how they did it and enforcing the law that they lost sight of the truths of the message of God and the ways of his salvation. And this charge isn't just against the leadership because it wasn't just the leadership described as the vineyard. It was all of Israel. And so Israel as well, all the people of Israel are included in this. How different are we? The message Jesus draws out in verse 43 is about the vineyard being given to people who will produce fruit for the master. Israel, it seems, have been doing a miserable job in achieving this. But what about the lives we live and the fruit that we produce? To produce this fruit requires honesty and it requires relationship. Honesty in recognizing that we are not deserving of anything because of our fallen and sinful state, the people that we are. And we need relationship with Jesus so that we can learn from him and in him find rest for our souls. Don't get sucked into a pretense, a pretense of how we think we should be living just as the people of Israel had. We need to be real with Jesus as Jesus is real with us. 
We need to realize and understand that the Christian life is not about outward appearances and social standing. Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint the new king. Saul had failed in his task and rejected by God. And Samuel was going to the children of Jesse, and he didn't know who to choose. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we learn a great attribute of God and a lesson for Samuel and a lesson for us. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We have to forget about how we see each other. Outward appearances don't matter. What matters is how God sees you. And don't have a checklist of how others should look as we see them live their lives. That's not to say that we allow people freedom to do whatever they want. There must be accountability within the faith. But there's no such thing as a checklist of how others should look. There are no standards that we set that people should follow because our standards fall far short of those of God. We must be following Jesus in reality and understanding our desperate need of his grace. And this is what the second parable goes on to teach. It teaches a message of what we call common grace. This common grace is from God and is God delaying his judgment as long as he can In the parable, the owner of the vineyard, a betrayal of God, does everything that he can to give these tenants an opportunity and a chance to come round to his way. And God is the same today. Let's not underestimate the power of God that we see in the Bible, in the stories that we read. It is the same power at work today. He offers us time and time again the opportunities to turn to him, to hear his call. This grace, this common grace is for everyone, no matter what social standing, no matter what class group we are. It is open to me and it's open to you. It requires us to acknowledge God and his ways and forget about the ways that we think we should be walking and living. It's about an inward change and not an outward appearance. It is a way of life that impacts and influences everything we do, from the minor to the major events of our daily living. So what can we say about Matthew 21? At the end of the day, God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ is for everyone and is only by his grace. It is not a program that we can opt in for parts we like and enjoy and opt out of things we don't like. Our challenge today is to live. From this moment, we are to live lives that recognize Jesus as the Son of God and the only means of salvation. We're to live lives that earnestly seek God every day so that we don't get caught in tradition or fall into a a false pretense of following Jesus. And we're to live lives that are joyful as we know our accepted place in the kingdom of God, a place that has been opened up to us and where God welcomes us no matter who we are, no matter what class, no matter what social grouping, because he delights to see his creation come to him. Let's pray.